Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, shocking new evidence that austerity kills. A report by the Institute of Health Equity, based at University College London, has crunched official statistics and found that between 2011 and 2019, more than a million people in England had shorter lives than those who lived in the most affluent areas. Now, this was a period of economic austerity when spending on the NHS and many other public services was constrained as a matter of government policy. The link between deprivation and mortality isn't a new one. But these figures don't just compare the very rich with the very poor. They look across the population as a whole to reveal a scale of excess deaths that afflicts most of society. The IHE also looked at what are known as healthy life years and found that between 2014 and 2017, 10 European countries overtook the UK for healthy life years for men and 14 countries overtook the UK for healthy life years for women. I want to speak now to Professor Sir Michael Marmot, who oversees the Institute for Health Equity. He wrote a landmark report on health inequality for Gordon Brown's government in 2010. Welcome, Sir Michael. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. So talk me through these figures, please, Michael. Just tell me how we arrive at the astonishing figure that one million people lived shorter lives than they might otherwise have done. My signature tune, as it were, is the gradient. My first big study in the UK was of British civil servants the Whitehall study. And what we found there was that everybody below the very top had higher mortality than those at the top. So professional grade civil servants, executive grade civil servants, none of whom is poor, had higher mortality than the top level administrators. The clerical officers had higher mortality than the professionals and executives. The office support grades, the messengers, the doorkeepers and so on, had higher mortality than the clerical officers, a social gradient. And when we look at the country as a whole, we find the same thing. Classify people by where they live, by a level of deprivation. And what you find is a social gradient. Everybody below the very top has higher mortality than the group above them. Now, exactly as you said in your introduction, lots of people, myself included, when they talk about health inequality, say, look, in the area around Grenfell, you know, in North Kensington, life expectancy is really low compared with the rich people in Kensington. And we tend to focus on the poor to illustrate the problem. But I've been studying this social gradient all my professional life. So you see this gradient, the less the deprivation, the longer the life expectancy. So the crucial question, of course, is it causal? Are you actually alleging that everybody could, in principle, have the good health of the best off 10%? And I am alleging that. And let me tell you why I am. Because suppose we were having this discussion 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Let's say it was the early 60s and we're having this discussion. What we would be looking at is a social gradient in life expectancy. And if you ask me, I'll come off it. You can't 
seriously tell me that people lower down could achieve the good health of those at the top? I'd say, I bet you they can. I can tell you, if we have this discussion in 60 years' time, in the 2020s, the people who are lower down now will have longer life expectancy than the ones who are at the top in the early 60s. So in 60 years' time, they'll look even better than the best off did 60 years ago. If you wait long enough, what you'll find is today's benchmark has moved on and the people lower down can achieve today's benchmark 30 years from now. That's provided things are still getting better, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So I think it's an entirely reasonable presumption that the people in the bottom 90% aren't sicker for some basic biological reason. It's not because of their genes. If we could get the social and economic conditions as well as we have them for the top 10%, their health would be as good as the top 10%. So I've laid out the basis for doing it. Given that we always find social gradients, under new labor, we had a social gradient. Now, it did get smaller. If you look by local authority, the gap between the poorest 20% and the rest in life expectancy did get smaller starting about three or four years after New Labour came into power, so starting around 2001 or two, and that gap continued to shrink till about 2012. So what we did was take the excess deaths in the bottom 90% compared with what it would have been if they had the low mortality of the top 10%. In 2010 and 11, then looked at what had happened to that excess over the decade of austerity. And what we found was the excess kept increasing. So we did two things. We said, how many excess deaths were there over the decade? And that was the figure you quoted of around a million. And how many excess, excess deaths? You know, how many extra were there in that decade compared with 2010? And that was about 148,000. So we could say that of the million excess deaths associated with being in the bottom 90%, about 148,000 of that million were due to austerity, which is huge, which is huge. What do we mean by excess deaths? Because people might say, well, look, a death is a death. What defines an excess death? Yeah, it's a good question. In a fundamental but trite sense, we're all mortal. We all die. So you know, you can say, what are you talking about? We're all going to die. Of course we are. So I say it's fundamental, but it's trite. It's sort of obvious. That's not saying anything. If we, for example, take somebody age 50 to 59, what was the death rate in the best off 10%? What was the death rate in the worse off 90%? That difference, that number of deaths is the excess. 
And then you do that for 60 to 69, 70 to 79. So at each age-specific mortality rate, you get more deaths per 100,000 in the bottom 90% than you do in the top 10%. So they're the excess deaths. And we always have those, as I said earlier, but we got more of them during the decade of austerity. So the calculation is we've got about a million, and that's 148,000 more than we would have had if the level of excess had remained as it were in the decade before austerity began. So the excess death figure is obtained by assessing the death rate amongst the top 10% as measured by income, as measured by lack of deprivation. As measured by the index of multiple deprivation. It's an Office for National Statistics figure. So you classify people by where they live. You classify where they live by the index of multiple deprivation. Not everybody who lives in a rich area is rich. Not everybody who lives in a poor area is poor. But in general, the greater the deprivation of the area, the greater likelihood that the people living there correspond to that level of deprivation. You said that during the time of new labour, the gap narrowed, the gap life expectancy narrowed. Was that because new labour placed a specific emphasis, a focus on narrowing that gap? They did. They had a health inequality strategy. I was part of that, the so-called Atchison report. We were convened in, I guess, 1997, and we reported, I think, 1999. So it took a while to elaborate the strategy. And part of it was place-based, focusing on deprived areas. And they did have a strategy and goals to reduce health inequalities. And I said to them towards the end of the period in office, I'm afraid you haven't done as well as you would have liked. And I was just looking at the numbers. I wasn't making a party political point. I said, life expectancy did improve for the worst off. So that's good. But you didn't do too well in narrowing the gap. Turned out I was wrong. People looking at the evidence a bit later, as I described, looking at the life expectancy for the most deprived 20% of areas compared with the rest, showed that the gap did narrow. So not only did they improve health for the worst off, which is good, but the gap between the worst off and the rest narrowed. I did the Marmot Review in 2010. In February 2020, we published Health Equity in England, the Marmot Review, 10 years on, and we looked at what had happened. The rate of increase of life expectancy had slowed. The inequalities had increased, and life expectancy for the poorest people had got worse. Which brings us back to austerity, I guess. Exactly. When I was being a sort of sobering voice at the end of the new labor period. And I said, health for the worst off people is improved. 
for the most deprived is improved. So that's a good achievement. Well done. But you haven't narrowed the gap. Well, under the decade of austerity, health for the worst off people declined, got worse. Not only did they not narrow the gap, the gap widened. And the life expectancy of people in the most deprived 10% went down outside London. So that's what happened. And this new calculation was a way of putting some numbers on it. The thing I've wanted to do for a long time of saying, let's not just focus on the poor. And we do a lot. I write all the time about the miserable circumstances affecting the most deprived. But I said, let's focus on the rich, not because I feel sorry for rich people, but because they provide a benchmark of what's possible in terms of health. And that's how we did this calculation. Everybody below the top 10% has got worse health than they would have if they were in the top 10%, the least deprived decile. And that's where the million extra deaths comes from. You've also assessed what are called healthy life years for men and women. Again, I wouldn't mind if you could just unpack although you may regard it as self-explanatory, what a healthy life year is, and how the UK now has slipped behind 10 European countries when it comes to healthy life years for men and slipped behind 14 European countries when it comes to healthy life years for women. This is over a relatively short period of time as well. Well, two things about life expectancy. One is it's a very odd calculation. It's not predicting how long you will live. It sounds like it is, but it isn't really. It's not making a prediction. The way it's done is you take the age-specific mortality rate now. So let's say children born today in the first five years of life, we expect five children per thousand live births to die. So at the end of five years, there'd be 900 and 95. And then you say, what's the mortality rate today for age 5 to 9, 10 to 19, 20, 29, and so on. And then we add it all up and we say that comes to a life expectancy of 82 for women, 79 for men, or whatever the figure is, roughly something like that. As I say, it's not a prediction, but people assuming they understand what I just said, which sounds like gobbledygook, say, well, I don't really care if I live to 81 or 82. I care about the quality of life, how healthy I am. Ah, the inequalities in healthy life are much bigger than the inequalities in life expectancy. So if we ask people at the census or some survey, how would you rate your health? Or do you have long-standing illness or disability? What we see is the social gradient, the greater the deprivation, the worse people's health. And if we then calculate healthy life years, years spent without illness or disability, as I say, that gradient is even steeper. So people in the most deprived areas, not only do they have shorter life expectancy, more of those shorter lives will be spent in ill health. And that really matters to people. They care about their life expectancy, but they care about how much of their life will be healthy. 
And those inequalities are huge. And what we saw in the decade after 2010, that actually healthy life expectancy got worse, particularly for women. So if you do surveys of how healthy people are, they were getting sicker, getting less healthy. And that's why we've slipped back in the European rankings, because that phenomenon in Britain was more marked than it was in other European countries. I think the period you looked at for healthy life years was between 2014 to 2017, when you were comparing with European countries. That's actually a very short period of time. But in that period, there is quite an alarming drop off in healthy life years in the UK. Yeah, there was. And when we looked at the whole decade from 2011 to 2019, we saw health getting worse for women and no improvement in healthy life years. You ascribe this to austerity, and I can understand the calculation that you've laid out for excess deaths being related to austerity. But how can we be sure that the number of additional excess deaths that you've described, and indeed the decline in healthy life years, is attributable to austerity? It could be coincidence. It could potentially be due to other factors, couldn't it? Very much so. It's the right question. And we've worried about this all the way along. And we've been careful not to overclaim causation. So we've been really quite cautious. In fact, when we published our 2020 report, I was asked on the BBC, how can you say it's due to austerity? And I said, well, we made a series of recommendations in 2010 based on a very comprehensive, detailed review of evidence. We had more than 80 experts working with us. We had nine task groups looking at all the domains. And this was our summary of all the evidence. And we looked early childhood, education, employment, having enough money, neighborhoods, environments, living conditions, and the determinants of lifestyle. And almost all of those had gone in the wrong direction. So we reviewed the evidence in 2010 and said, if you improve these six domains, health will improve and life expectancy gaps will diminish. What happened as a society, we went in pretty well the opposite direction on all six. And guess what? Life expectancy stopped improving and the inequality gap got bigger. So I said to the BBC interview, I invite you to speculate with me that the one might have caused the other. So that's not strong proof of causation, but I think that's a reasonable speculation. The second part, let's look at funding to local government. The spending by local authority per person from 2010 to 2019 in the least deprived 20% of local authorities, went down by 17%. So government stopped funding local government. And then the greater the deprivation, the greater the reduction in spending. In the most deprived 20%, the spending went down by 32% per person. Wow. And researchers from Liverpool looked 
by neighborhood, by area. And what they found was the greater the reduction in spending, the worse the performance in life expectancy. So I was being cautious and saying, I invite you to speculate with me that A causes B and a deterioration in A leads to a deterioration in B. But then these colleagues went and examined it and they said, look, we can show that the greater the reduction in funding to local government, the worse the life expectancy performance. So it was a prima facie case that there was causation going on. And you drew up a list of principles, the Marmot principles, as they have become known, and you've worked in partnership with a number of local authorities. Coventry City Council is one, for example, where you've sought to put health equity at the heart of everything those local authorities do. So I guess that's an opportunity to experiment, for want of a better word, with real lives, to test your theory. What are the Marmot principles and how has that worked out? Well, the Marmot principles, I summarised them briefly a moment ago, but give every child the best start in life. Number two, education and lifelong learning. Number three, employment and working conditions. Number four, everyone should have at least the minimum income necessary for a healthy life. Number five, healthy and sustainable places in which to live and work, so housing, neighbourhoods, and environment, air pollution, and the like. And number six, taking what I call a social determinants approach to prevention. So in other words, you don't just say, don't smoke, run around the block, eat healthily. You understand the constraints on why people don't listen to your advice, why it's difficult to eat healthily if you're poor, and so on. So those were the six. Coventry, not prompted by me, picked it up. I mean, I had been to Coventry and I'd lectured there and talked about it, but I didn't say, Coventry, you please do this. Coventry said, we're going to become a Marmot City. We're going to take on your six domains and we're going to make them the basis for planning, not just for the health care system, not just for public health, but for the city of Coventry. It was led by the chief executive of the city government and the political leader. And they got education, the voluntary and community sector, the health system, the police, the fire and rescue service, all bodies working together to say, let's make these six the basis of how we improve lives in Coventry. And the result has been? Again, I'm cautious about attributing cause and effect. It was not a pucker experiment. If you want to know, does a COVID vaccine work? You do a randomised controlled trial and some people get the vaccine and some don't and you see how many get COVID and so on. So this was not that kind of experiment. We don't have a proper control group. It wasn't a pucker experiment. So I'm cautious. But what I can say, what we looked at, the proportion of 18 to 24-year-olds not in employment, education or training went down. The proportion of people in work 
earning a real living wage went up. The percent of children ready for school, um, good level of development, age five, improved. So I've given you the caveats. I'm not overclaiming. I'm not saying that proves Coventry works, but it's encouraging indicators moving in a good direction. All of those elements will hopefully in the long term lead to lengthier lives for the people of Coventry and also, very importantly, healthier lives in the time that they're on this planet as well. That's why they're doing it, and we have to see. Now, Coventry has widespread deprivation and some pockets of deep deprivation. So they start with a lot of disadvantage, but what they're trying to do is overcome that disadvantage. And that stems from embedding these six principles into every decision the local authority makes, albeit in a very challenging time financially for local authorities, as we have discussed. One final question for you, Michael. You talked about the gradient that has always been there, a gradient that shows that the top 10% live longer lives than the other 90%. And that's true across time and across governments. Do you think we could ever reach a situation where there is no gradient, where there is simply a flat line where everybody in society, regardless of wealth, regardless of where they live, could reasonably expect to live healthily for the same amount of time, more or less? Is that something to aspire to? Is that a realistic aspiration? It's something to aspire to, but I doubt that we'll ever get there. We were invited by the government of Norway to do a review of health and health inequalities and what we call social determinants of health for Norway. Norway looks brilliant on most of the things that I talk about. looks brilliant. And they have health inequalities. The more years of education, the longer the life expectancy. So you might say Norway is our benchmark. If they have health inequalities, the rest of us are going to have health inequalities forever. The magnitude varies. I've said in a relatively short time, the inequalities increased in the UK and we slipped back compared to other European countries. So they can change quite quickly. And I don't think we'll ever get to everybody having the same good life expectancy and good health as the best of. Uh, Norway hasn't got there. Sweden hasn't got there. I don't know of any country that has got there. But we can certainly do a lot better than we have. And there's something else worth emphasizing. I've been looking at a series of reports in the Financial Times. I notice I said the Financial Times, not the New Statesman not the Guardian, the FT. And that's important because they're a solid set of evidence-based data crunchers who look at the evidence. And a fair summary of these reports is that Britain is a poor country with some rich people. The top 10% are doing quite well, thank you, compared with other European countries. But the media, the 50th centile, We're much poorer 
I mentioned Norway before. We're much poorer than Norway. Our top 10% is as rich as Norway. Our medians are a lot poorer than Norway. And our bottom 10% is way, way poorer than Norway. It's poorer than Slovenia. So we're a poor country where the top 10% is doing well, but the rest of us are falling behind. And that's another reason why I did this calculation. Norway has inequalities in income. No question, the median have lower income than the top 10% by definition. But the income inequality gap's not as big as it is in the UK. So we would like to get to a stage where more people are benefiting from the better economic circumstances and social circumstances as the top 10% are. And then we'd have fewer excess deaths and a smaller gap between the top 10% and the rest. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Always fascinating to speak to you. And you can look back to a previous podcast we did after that 2020 review of the initial Marmot Report. You'll find that in the back catalogue of the Byline Times podcast as well. If you want to support our work here on the podcast, you can take out a subscription to the Byline Times. Head over to bylinetimes.com to find out more details. We are available now on selected newsstands. You can find us on Substack as well, Byline Supplement. But the best way to guarantee a copy of the Byline Times, which is full of interesting stuff like this, is to take out a subscription. As I say, head over to bylinetimes.com. This has been a We Bring Audio production by me, Adrian Goldberg and Harvey White in Birmingham. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again very soon. But for now, thank you and goodbye.